morning, Petaluma. This is Talking with Rabbi Ted. You're listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, online at kpca.fm. This is Rabbi Ted Feldman, Chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council and Rabbi at the B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma. Welcome back for this week's program. It, we have two guests to introduce uh, during our second segment today. You'll be hearing from Luz Weyer, who's also helping me in the engineering side of the uh, program today, uh, talking about a great event that we had last night for the Community Relations Council and his profound interest in empathy listening. We'll be doing that during our second segment. And here in our first segment, I'd like to welcome to the studio uh, Paula Dewecki, who is a fire inspector for the City of Petaluma Fire Department. It's great to have you here in the studio today. Good morning, Ted. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. And uh, uh, in some ways, this, um, you know, you are uh, somewhere in the background of what happens in our city, but yet what you do has so much to do with the safety and welfare of our population. So honored that you could take the time to come here and discuss what you do and help inform our community about another little piece of uh, another hero in our community that we don't always know about. So thank you, thank you. So how did you get into this business of fire inspection? And what, what does that all mean? And how did you get there? Well, uh, this is the second career for me. I have a bachelor's degree in business from Sonoma State University. And I worked in finance and marketing for years and didn't find it particularly uh, professionally or personally rewarding or fulfilling. I wanted to do something that would serve the community and make it a better place. I just didn't know what that was. So I uh, didn't need another four-year degree, so I went to Santa Rosa Junior College and started exploring their different certificate, pro you know, technical cer certificate programs, and I discovered fire technology which is a great program, and it introduces students to all different types of career opportunities within the fire service, not just firefighting. And uh, I was hooked. The rest is history. Here I am almost 20 years later. Wow, that's amazing. So what kind of, what kind of courses and what do you study to get into this kind of position and even into firefighting? I realize that's a different uh, department. It is. Um, there is. The fire technology program is a really good place to start. It is a program with core courses and electives that give you a, a basic background in the fire service, uh, not just different careers, but different um, responsibilities and things that we do to serve the community. Uh, the particular class I teach is Introduction to the Fire Service, which is also a prerequisite for the Fire Academy. So Santa Rosa Junior College also offers the Firefighter One Academy, which is uh, basically one of the first steps you need to take if you want to be a firefighter. You need to be trained, and uh, the Academy will do that for you. Okay, so you have uh, all these courses behind you. I was, uh, I was reading in the paper this morning, actually, about the, the distance that some of the firefighters from Petaluma travel in order to come to work, that one flies in, oh, and, yes. uh, one lives up near Reading and drives in for their two, you know, 40, 96, how many hours on? We, we call 48. it a, a two-by-four schedule on uh -huh. 48 off four days. Right, right. So, uh, yeah, so that was fascinating to see 
uh, how far people are traveling for their jobs, but it's also a comment on what it costs to live here in Petaluma for people it really, serving it really and helping is. our community. It really is the cost of living, especially real estate's gone up, so it's harder to own homes here. And we do have um, firefighters that travel in from long distances. We have one up in the Reading area. We have a couple out in uh, Roseville. Um, and they travel in. With the, the two-by-four schedule, two days on and four off, it's, it's easier to make those commutes, and um, it gives them some flexibility. So, yeah. yeah some, people, a, some people have a travel to come in. I know. I know. The, the person flying in was, had to say that during uh, inclement weather, he has to actually drive here, which yes. adds, adds to the commute, obviously. It adds does, to the and commute. it's not as much fun. It's not as much fun. <laughs> it's not as much fun, probably. So um, so your, your side of the fire department, uh, what's your world like? What are you doing? Uh, are you going into houses and checking houses? What, what's work like? So the Fire Prevention Bureau, the way we serve the community, is we try to uh, mitigate fire hazards and um, either identify and remove them or lessen their impact once a fire starts. And it's not just fire. We also manage hazardous material facilities as well. So the day in the life of a fire inspector is varied. We could go out and do inspections of new construction. We may do annual permit inspections of existing businesses and facilities. Uh, we're also fire investigators. If, you know, we have a fire in the middle of the day, we're going to drop everything and go. And we're going to go play the fire investigator role. Uh, we implement public education programs, both uh, to kids and schools and with community groups and, um, and adults. Oh, wow, what else do we do? We do a lot of things. Petaluma is a small city, so we're very well-rounded. We're fortunate as inspectors here because we are well-rounded and we do pretty much everything, mm-hmm. <laughs> except for except for firefighting. We don't jump on the engines and, don't jump and don't, we engines. don't play that role. Um, and again, we're fortunate here. You look at large cities like San Francisco or Oakland where they have such a huge population they serve. A lot of times their inspectors um, uh, specialize and they only in inspect certain types of facilities, maybe just hazardous materials or just high-rise buildings. And, um, but that in Petaluma, we just do it all. <laughs> what's the level of compliance in our community like? Is it, are we pretty good about it? Uh, without being specific, I'm not asking oh, you to oh, call no, people of here not. today. My but experience, yeah, no, my experience working with the business community in Petaluma has been overwhelmingly positive. And my approach is always education. When you explain to someone why you need them to make a correction, why you, you're asking them to do the things that you are asking them to do, and they understand the importance, people get on board of that. They want to have safe buildings. They want to, you know, keep their employees and their patrons safe, um, and, and they work with you. It's very, very rare to have a, what I call a problem child, someone who just fights you on things. That's... That's very rare. So this is a good community to work with. Does, does each community set its own standards for compliance? Or is there a state standard, a national standard? How does comp- where, where do you get what you're looking for? How do right. look and, and How what, do we what the guidelines what right, the guidelines right. and requirements are? So in California, we all the jurisdictions work off of the California Fire Code which is adopted from the international codes. I won't go there. We have the California Fire Code, and it applies throughout the state. 
each individual community has to adopt that fire code every three years. And at that time that we adopt, we have an opportunity to make amendments to address um, community-specific needs. So um, so we're actually get going through, just getting ready now to go through the next adoption cycle for um, the next fire code adoption. And I assume some of those differences would be topography, uh, you know, what mountainous, uh, flats, yeah. uh, different standards that have to be met because of where the city might be or where the district, the fire district might be. Right, and we all have our challenges. So that what you just described is an excellent example. We call... Um, there are areas we call wildland urban interface, WUI, and that's where our um, cities move up into wildland open space, and we have that potential wildfire threat. And it all depends on the geography of the city. Healdsburg's got Fitch Mountain. They've got a lot of these areas. So does Santa Rosa. Petaluma, sitting in the valley the way we do, we have less of a threat that way. Um, but you also look at other threats that have to be um, addressed. We have floodplains in Petaluma, so we have to address those issues. Um, and honestly, the entire state, our, our, the fire service, what we're preparing for in the next disaster is going to be an earthquake. I mean, that's just, we live in California, that's, that's not a matter of if, it's when. So, so the fire, so going back to the fire code, while there is a, um, each chapter addresses certain issues that apply to all communities. We do individually as communities have our, our specific challenges. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, the, the notion of earthquake is, is the big one. Uh, in our discussion, uh, I think one of the things you pointed out was that uh, the likelihood of a wildfire in our, given the nature of our city and where we're located, is much less and we're more vulnerable, of course, to both floods and earthquakes in our community. Yes, um, we, our city doesn't look like paradise. It doesn't look like, you know, the eastern, northeastern edges of Santa Rosa that have those areas. I'm not going to say that wildfire is never going to be an issue for us. I'm just saying that when you, you uh, identify your hazards and you prioritize them in terms of likelihood, our likely issues, our hazards are going to be flood and, and earthquake here. So uh, if those are hazards, uh, are there programs that the department is offering to help the citizens of Petaluma prepare and do all that stuff? Yes, I we do. We do. <laughs> and, you know, not just at, at, at the Petaluma level, but at the county and state level, what we like to tell people is it doesn't, disaster preparedness is not disaster specific. There are certain general steps that you can take and things you can do to prepare regardless of what the emergency is going to be. And we really encourage that. We encourage people um, prepare their families, have evacuation plans, have um, disaster preparedness kits in their homes, and figure out how they're going to take care of themselves uh, for a certain period of time. And um, if you're well, if you're generally well prepared for just general disaster preparedness, you're, you're pretty much going to be okay. So what, and the thing is, is now after the 2017-2018 wildfire season, we really have the public's ear and we're trying to take advantage of that. So what Petaluma has done is we have implemented a program called COPE. It stands for Citizens Organized to Prepare for Emergencies. And it is sort of a hybrid program between what Santa Rosa has implemented and the Get Ready program down in Marin. 
uh, quarterly we have meetings, community meetings, where we will talk about uh, general disaster preparedness and some lessons learned from not just the wildfire season, but for example, the Napa quake, uh, what was it, three, four years ago Mm -hmm. now. Um, And then we talk about preparing yourself in your home, but also more and more what you're hearing from the public is they want to come together as a group, as a neighborhood, and prepare with with teens. So um, one element of the COPE program that we brought in was a program called um, Map Your Neighborhood which is out of the Washington State Office of Emergency Services. And that goes a little further. That addresses, well, now you've got, you want to organize your neighborhood into teams. And it gives you all the step-by-step process of how to, how to organize a team, uh, how to plan team meetings, how to survey your neighborhood for hazards and evacuation routes, uh, what to do immediately after, say, it's a flood or an earthquake, whatever the issue is, and basically working together as a group and a team and looking out for each other. And that's what the Map Your Neighborhood program does. So we're really, um, we are providing that information to anyone that wants to organize their neighborhood. And it's really neighborhood-driven. The fire department's not going to come in and train you. We just don't have the resources. We'd love to do that. I'd love to do that. That is fun. We don't have the resources for it. So what we're trying to do is give the neighborhoods and the citizens all the resources they need to become self-sufficient in those situations. So uh, this may sound like a silly question, but it occurs to me, how large is a neighborhood? Because I'm, I'm thinking of where I live, and there are 185 homes in the development, right? Is that a neighborhood? Is the street you live on? You know, what are, what are these organization units? Is there an ideal size in terms of uh, working together? There is, and that's a really great point. I had that conversation with someone yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, the Map Your Neighborhood program, the largest team group of homes that you want are 20. Okay. So your teams should be divided into no more than 20 homes. That's manageable. Once you start getting larger than that, it's it's unmanageable and things sort of spin out of control. And if you look at how the fire service operates, we divide ourselves into groups, into smaller groups. And so because once a group gets too large, you can't manage it well. So even in the fire service, we limit our activities, our responses, you know, our assignments to smaller groups. And so that's, we tell neighborhoods to do that. So you may have a neighborhood of 100 homes. Well, then you'll have five groups, okay. ideally, or five teams. I, I didn't know that there was a number, so that, that's what exactly that's what your, I want to say. That's your rule okay. of thumb. That's, that's rule the of rule thumb. of thumb. Uh-huh. Do you have any concept of how many neighborhoods are organized in Petaluma? Is it happening? It, it is happening. We're very excited about it. So the first COPE meeting we had was in August of last year. It was very well attended. Uh, the second one we had was in November. And after each one, we have had, I'd say, easily five to six requests for um, Map Your Neighborhood information. So that's not five or six homes. That's five or six neighborhoods that want to figure out how to organize. Um, and we're, we're tracking where those neighborhoods are, uh, mostly to start out with the, uh, the Windsor neighborhood, the south end of town, uh, Windsor Drive, the open, you know, backed up to open space. They know they have issue, you know, potential issues out there. And um, we've had neighborhoods all over town that are asking for the information. So how do people get access to this? Uh, if, if, if a couple of people are listening out there and they actually 
decide they would like to take some leadership role in their neighborhood to introduce this, do they have to wait for the quarterly meeting, or is there something they can do in between to get started? Well, if you want to get started early before the next meeting, and let, let's let's take a time out there. So our next COPE meeting uh-huh. is going to be March 5th. It's a Tuesday. As we get closer, we'll be sending out flyers and information on social media, local media, and through community groups to get the word out. So the best approach would be to attend a quarterly COPE meeting. Um, and then we can, and then you can contact me directly, or you can get on the city of Petaluma, the fire department website. Under disaster, there's information on um, on organizing your neighborhood. So if you don't want to wait for the quarterly meeting, you can just go to fire department website under the heading disaster, and it gives all the disaster preparedness information and how to contact us. Um, to organize your neighborhood. What What's the next step I make, need to take? And when people are preparing for disaster, when people are preparing, preparing for disaster, how, um, how long are they, a period of time, should they assume that emergency services won't be able to help them? Because um, I think people... You might think, oh, I'll just call 911 if I, right. you know, if, mm-hmm. I, if something happens here. Well, the old school uh, wisdom was, you know, be able to take care of yourself for up to three days. The reality of it is, which we've now acknowledged and we tell the public, you realistically need to be able to take care of yourself uh, for anywhere from five to seven days. Because especially after a large-scale earthquake, our, we may not, we just may not be able to get to you. Um, so, so being, you know... Being prepared, prepared right. means five to seven days, water, food, medication, that sort of thing. And the famous go bags. And the famous go bags if you have to leave. If, if you, have, you to have, leave. have to leave. Yours. And then let me, one more thing for the animal lovers out there, because I'm a dog person. When you're planning for disasters, plan for your pets too. Don't forget them. Mm-hmm. So, um, Obviously, the role of the community in being prepared for disaster is very important. All of us need to be ready and to be self-sufficient for a period of time before emergency services might come following an earthquake, fire, flooding, whatever. What um, what about our professionals now? Are, are we totally prepared as a professional firefighting community, a rescue community, to meet these needs? Uh, how do you measure readiness uh, internally in the fire department? Well, one thing that we do, well, first of all, police and fire, with no different. We are constantly training. We are identifying hazards and looking at what the national standards are for performance, and we're training towards those standards. So um, I think we're a very well-trained department, and we're very prepared. The only thing is, and this is true of any department in the country, is that the true measure of are you actually prepared is when, you know, all heck breaks loose, and what's the response, and how well did we did, and what were we able to address, and, but I, we're a we're a strong, well-trained department, so I have the utmost confidence in right, how we, that, that right, we're going to be right. able to serve the community. Yeah, so the the answer is the only way to know is, is unfortunately, for the disaster. I remember a, uh, a board president a number of years ago, not here in Petaluma, said to me, um, you've got to be able to uh, stop the emergencies from happening, as, mm-hmm. as, a, as a direction to me, <laughs> and I'm saying to myself, really? Really? <laughs> 
that's not gonna happen. We'd be out of a job at that We gotta keep those jobs. So um one of the big themes in the county following the fires was the issue about communication. Communication uh, to the public, communication, the warnings that did or didn't happen up in Santa Rosa in particular, uh, communications among the agencies. Uh, Do you have any comments on that and where we are with that at this point here in Petaluma? That's, you know, that's a touchy subject. And um, what I like people to know, this is the most important thing. If you want to know what's going on, you want emergency warnings, the way the city of Petaluma does this is we do it through Nixle. So go to the Nixle website, nixle.com. N-I-X-L-E. N-I-N as in Nancy, I-X-L-E dot com. And you can register for different levels of communication. um, But we will send out alerts if it has to do with evacuation, shelter in place, um, just providing emergency information. That's how the city of Petaluma is going to do it. Um, And on the countywide level, SoCo Alert, which is S-O-C-O, SoCo Alert, just Google it, it'll come up. You can register for that as well. And that is strictly emergency communications from the county level. Because remember, Petaluma residents don't necessarily live within the city limits. They live in the unincorporated mm-hmm. areas as well. And um, so that's that's really the two primary ways to get good, timely information. And once you know every something's happening, tuning into the local radio stations, um, if you have website access, getting into the local news websites, there will be, a, and particularly uh, the sheriff's department, they will provide countywide information as well as emergency services. Those are good sources for, for ongoing information. I know when during the uh, 2017 fires, um, I, I live across from the Veterans Hall, and which was a, an evacuation center. Mm-hmm. And so I would actually, to my community uh, uh, email list, I would email out uh, two or three updates a day about what was happening in the evacuation centers and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And people were really appreciative of having the communications about what's going on. So while the emergency services would certainly come to Nixol and uh, SoCo Alert, uh, internally in the community, people wanted to uh, be able to know what's happening, what's, what's going on in the community you know, during the fires. So right. communication is such an important element. It is very important. In the And one of the lessons learned um, out of the, the last two wildfire seasons we had is it's really hard to have too much information. Mm-hmm. You know, tell the public what they need to know. Give them the information, the important information, so that they can make decisions for themselves as well. Not just following evacuation orders, but they, they know what's going on, and, and that's communications key. Uh, yeah, I appreciated the uh, Nixle alerts, mm-hmm. certainly, as they were coming through uh, during that period of time. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the, the amalgamation of the fire services, uh, the various fire services in the county that... Uh, into one unit that they're working on a little further north? Oh, is that going to help? That's way above my pay grade. Oh, that's above your pay yeah, grade. That's okay. above my pay grade. Um, but it is. Consolidations are not just a Sonoma County issue. That's something that's been going on all over the country. Uh-huh. And in pooling our resources, in training together, and finding the most effective way to serve our communities, and sometimes that's the best way to do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, those decisions are being made all over the county right now. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, any programs through your department with the children, with the schools? Um, 
letting them know? Well, uh, well, with the schools, we keep the messaging and the education very simple. October's fire prevention, well, uh, we have fire prevention week in October, which a lot of times departments recognize as fire prevention month. Um, and in fire prevention month of October, our engine companies go out and visit the school. They, they do school visits. They teach, you know, safety lessons, and they keep our messaging very consistent for those younger age groups. Yeah, that's very important. I know my, my little one took a walk over, <laughs> a hike over to the fire station at one point and uh, was thrilled to be able to experience that. And I think it's important for them to make that connection at that age. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, going over and seeing the yeah. fire engines. That's cool. That that's is fun cool. Stuff. That is cool. They, no rides, but no hey, rides, but uh, hey, next best do? thing. What yeah. are you going to do? Yeah, you, you said Fire Prevention Week. When I growing up, we had Brotherhood Week. Mm-hmm. As a kid, I couldn't imagine that I only had to be nice to people one <laughs> one week out of the year. <laughs> so uh, your message is that, yes, that we may have Fire Prevention Week or month, but actually fire prevention is a daily activity. Uh, 365 and, days a year. And yep. 24 hours and a day 24 all the hours time. A yeah, day. It's yeah. a really... It's a really uh, tough thing to uh, to take care of. So, uh, anything else happening that you want us to know about? We have a couple of minutes left in our discussion, and uh, do we skip anything that you uh, would like to share with us? You know, one thing I wanted I was reflecting on um, in our conversation earlier was. And I wanted to emphasize again, going back and talking about disaster preparedness, and even if you don't organize at the neighborhood level, getting to know your neighbors, talk to your neighbors, know who they are, know who the, um, you know, the people in your neighborhood that need help, know where they are and who they are. The conversation in the fire service after uh, the 2017 wildfires, uh, we had some very blunt conversations amongst ourselves and with our communities. And one of the things that came out of looking what happened after the Tubbs fire is we were really surprised we did not have more fire fatalities. And when we started looking at what, why that was, it was because neighbors were looking out for neighbors. So the really important thing is, is we need to look out for each other. It's, it's important for our own survival. It's important for the benefit of our community and, um, and when we act as a team, as a family, we're much stronger. I thank you. I, I, that's a really important message. As I had told you, I was the president of a homeowners association in the East Bay in a large complex. And working together really made a difference in getting to know people and forming these groups that can save lives ultimately. So it's a really important work to do. I want to thank you very much for being with us today and talking with Rabbi Ted, Paula DeWicki, Fire Inspector for the Petaluma Fire Department. And during our second segment today, we'll be speaking with uh, Luz Wire about how we talk with each other. Please join us after our three-minute break.
Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted. You're listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, online at kpca.fm. Here in our second segment, sitting right next to me on this side of the table this time, uh, is uh, Luz Weyer, a member of the PCRC Coordinating Committee, a uh, local filmmaker, um, does lots of good work around this world of ours. Thank you. It's great to have you in the studio. Thank you, Ted. And uh, thank you for helping out on these buttons over here. Happy to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So um, thanks for asking me to be here. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Um, so let's see. You've done filmmaking. You've done what? Are, any other aspects of your career? I don't even know about. Yeah. So, so I I did go to film school at UCLA. I was trained as a filmmaker. Started making films as a high school student. Uh, wanted to direct feature films. Re- after film school, worked in television news for about ten years, and worked for the LA Unified School District, actually teaching a class called Student News. This was in the seventy late seventies, where we taught students from all over L.A. County, so all 49 high schools in L.A., we taught them television news production and they produced a weekly newscast. Mm -hmm. We did that for about four and a half years and we won local area Emmys two years in a row. And yeah, there were about 500 kids that went through that and many of them are in the entertainment, you know, in the news business. Yeah. Uh Um, And then I joined higher education and I spent a... 27-year career working for the California State University System doing technology and education. So bringing my media background and my uh, teaching background into helping faculty understand how to utilize technology in education. And so at that time, when I first started, computers were, you know, spreadsheets and word processors were just coming in. Mm -hmm. And then later in my career, interactive media. So when when computers started to manipulate audio and video, we were doing interactive media and web-based media, and yeah, so I... I was thinking that over that amount of years, how much and how quickly technology changed uh, in this period of time. I remember once seeing a timeline about technology from prehistoric times of uh, use of technology from the simple thing of the wheel, right, invention of the wheel, etc., and it's like a flat line for centuries and centuries and centuries, then getting in the middle of the 1800s in particular, and then, of course, 1900s, and then the spike at the end of the 1900s. So you were part of that technology revolution in that particular field in which you were serving. Yeah, and those kinds of innovations have just continued to accelerate. I mean, in the, you know, so there was television came in, but then, like, in the, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, the, the the internet only started in the late 90s. I mean, that's when you had web when web pages. You first had things happening on the web. Before that, there was email, you know. But so the whole internet and web technologies, which we take for granted today, you know, it wasn't that long ago that they first got it. Very new. It's all yeah. very new. Yeah. Now the, and I just want to say, sure. the, the other kind of track for me, as opposed in terms of media and education, the other track is conflict resolution and communication skills and leadership skills. Mm-hmm. So in 1995, I got exposed to nonviolent communication mm-hmm. and started to practice it and then teach it, and then did workshops in conflict resolution and um, 
Yeah, and then I'm also involved in a group in Sacramento called the Authentic Leadership Center where we do a eight-day transformational training teaching people about um, communication skills and then also personal, you know, internal skills for managing your internal life, you know, your internal emotional right. life so that you're more a more effective person. Yes, I, I hope we can get to some of that discussion a little bit later in our conversation today because... That's the, uh, the the mark that I see you making in our community about communication skills and how to, uh, in this very divided world, techniques of trying to pull people together. Uh, there are lots of things that people can disagree with all the time and how to live a life and how to create a community where those don't become obstacles to uh, to the welfare of, of uh, human life and, and to people who who try to make a difference in the world. Yeah. But I want, before we start that, you know, last night the Community Relate, Petaluma Community Relations Council had a wonderful program. We met at the Petaluma Library, the public library. Uh, probably a little over 100 people gathered there as we examined the issue of inclusivity and bias in our public schools. And we had students speaking and administrators. We had a lot of people from the school system, a lot of teachers and principals. It was really a wonderful evening. What, what was your take on it? What, what what was that experience like for you? I also thought it was a wonderful evening. The um, there were there were a lot of people there. I think over a hundred people, and we had a number of speakers. And I think you know what was most distinctive about it for me was that um, the evening was framed as an evening of inquiry. So the idea that we were bringing people together, students, administrators, school administrators, the police department, you know, the, so both the students and the people who are responsible for uh, uh, managing and in creating the, the climate in schools, bringing them together to talk, to share what they are doing, what is happening, and learning from each other. And then, actually, and then not just doing that, but actually having the community members that came which were teachers and students and just regular community members, having them get into small groups and having them listen to each other about what was their experience, what has, what has been their experience of these things that we were talking about, and also what responses did they have to what they had heard that evening. Yeah. And I think they did that for about 20 minutes, which is you know not very long, but um, it's long enough to start a conversation and for people to actually get to know each other and to begin to hear each other. And I think... That's, um, there was a lot of excitement and energy, and even after the listening circle portion of it was over, people stayed around for probably another 20 minutes or more talking after the event was over, talking, finding out more about each other, you know, planning things together, uh, exchanging inf contact information, you know, and that's, that's the beginning of working together to make things better. Well, as we can both certainly affirm, we believe in relational society, that it's all about our relationships with each other and creating the world we want out of those relationships. The students last night were, um, were amazing. It took a certain amount of strength for them to stand in front of all these people, administrators, principals, and the community, and say the things that they had experienced that really hurt them deeply inside uh, because they were uh, individuals of color, cultural differences, uh, etc. And um, I'm hoping at the 
future show to have some of the students come on and have some of those discussions on the radio because I think our general community needs to be listening. And, of course, in the radio environment, you have to listen. There's no, no other... T- if, you're, if you are paying attention, you're listening. And I hope to give them that platform to be able to share some of those messages. Some of them were hard to believe, some of the stories that they were happening. Hard to believe that, they, that people think that way, uh, to say the things they did to them, and hard to believe that it happened in our beautiful community. So... Yeah, and it takes a lot of bravery for students, young people, to come forward and talk about what's happened to them. It takes emotional vulnerability to do that, and it takes bravery because you're never quite sure how people are going to react to it. And probably most of them had the experience of trying to tell someone about it and having having it be discounted or not believed or, or just nothing done about it. And so it's, that's a painful, that's a very painful thing. And I, and I will say, you know, to the credit of the... Uh, school personnel who were there who listened and all of them to a person when they got up to speak acknowledged what the students had said and were grateful for it and told them that they were ashamed that things like this had happened and that it was not right and that you know they were committed to doing something about it and that and yeah there's more listening to be done with that uh, one Absolutely. of the students who spoke afterwards I said how did you feel about the apologies or the reactions of the administrators? And she said, I don't know. I'm not yeah. sure yet. She, it needs more work. It needs more work. And I believe they were sincere, like as you are saying, but yeah. perception is part of this uh, issue. And that perception is where the whole system of teaching people to listen yeah. really makes a difference. And that's what we're hoping to accomplish by what we started last night as well as part of our discussion here today to move into that. So take us into that next step of our discussion today about empathetic listening and its role in making a difference in people's lives. Yeah, and I just, I will do that, and I just want to make a comment about what you said. So, you know, if someone says, makes an apology or says they feel a certain way and the person who's receiving it says, you know, well, I'm not sure about that, that just shows there's not enough trust in the relationship and more more interaction needs right. to happen, and action also needs to happen. So, you know, it's one thing to say something and then to actually do something about it. That's another thing that builds trust. So one thing that builds trust is expressing yourself and hearing the other person. Another thing that builds trust is actually doing something that makes right. a change. Right. So, you know, and that's what that's that's needs right. to happen, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I've lost the question. Yeah, so tell me uh, about the... Your, this whole thing about empathetic listening oh. and um, what that means and how it yeah, happens. So, so listening is a very important skill. And I think in, in all of the conflict resolution and communication workshops and teaching that I've done, I usually start by focusing on listening uh, because um, actually being present and really fully receiving the other person, just receiving what they're saying, and then maybe saying something back to let them know that you've heard what they're saying, um, is a skill that uh, isn't well-developed in a lot of people. So most people, when they are listening to another person talking, particularly if it's a charge thing, they are thinking about whether they agree or disagree with what the person is saying, whether it's true or not, and they are preparing how they're going to respond to what that person is saying. And, um, and that 
gets in the way <laughs> of fully receiving what the other person is saying. And again, if it's a charged situation where there's a lot of emotion or there's not a lot of trust in the relationship, if, if you respond to the person not by reflecting back what you're hearing them say and letting them know that you understand them, but instead you respond with your judgments or your opinions or your something, an argument against telling them how wrong they are, um, uh, that creates disconnection. So instead of creating connection and understanding, it creates more kind of disconnection. So the first kind of skill to teach is listening for the feelings and kind of the desires that are being expressed in what the person is saying and trying to acknowledge those. So the first skill to be developed is that of listening and being able to express back to the person exactly as close as we can, being another to what you heard. Yeah, reflect back what you're hearing, right. Yeah. I tried to do it just now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's right. That's right. Well, and you used the word word express, and I switched it to the word, it's really the word reflection. Uh Because expression, in in the way I teach it, expression is more like me saying what's inside of me, Uh when it's my turn to actually talk. So I, so the process of Reflecting back what you're hearing the person say, I call that reflection as opposed to expression. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so do you want to? Should we try to demonstrate this for people? I, I think, think we have sure time to do that. I think we can do it. Okay. So, so if I were going to demonstrate listening to you fully okay. and reflecting back what I'm hearing, so tell me, tell me something like that's important to you. This is more meaningful if, when you're talking about something that's important to you. So tell me about. Tell me something okay. that's important to you. Well, I get in the in lieu of what uh, I mean as a result of what happened last evening, being in the presence of our uh, school administrators and all that, it, it pointed out to me how uh, important the school system is to me because I have a personal investment and I have a child in the school system, and would want to know that she is going to grow up in a healthy environment that. Uh, Hopefully, she won't be bullied and she won't be hurt by others. Uh, that's hard to avoid in the world of ours in many ways, particularly in children who start forming ideas about other people. Okay, and so let me talk sure, about what I'm hearing so far. So what I'm hearing is that last night's meeting, when we were there and, and you were witnessing all the discussion and the expression by different people, the, the evening had a particular uh, deep meaning for you because you have a child that's going to be going into school and you're thinking about what will her experience be like in school and you're wanting to know that she'll be protected and that she'll have a good experience and that uh, she'll be welcomed and accepted. And so, and so yes. the, the evening had a lot of importance for you. Yes, for that it reason. did. It did. And that she will learn... Uh, that the world is made up of all kinds of people from different cultures, backgrounds, different ideas, uh, different skin colors, different all the things that make that we've determined make the world different. Okay, and and so now I'm hearing that you you're hoping, you're really hoping, you want to know that she will get exposure to a lot of diversity, people of different backgrounds, and that that's important to you. That's a value and something you want her to experience. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so 
Yeah, so there was just an example. Yeah, so example trying right. to reflect back what I was and saying. we've done this uh, together, you and I, in a couple of groups already, in the, our Tuesday night interfaith group and in our PCRC coordinating committee. We had sessions on this, and it's really been an effective way of communicating. And, and I have uh, one of the activities that I've been engaged in for the last probably eight months is doing this kind of um, using this process with cross-political dialogue. So bringing together people that have differing political views and having them sit together like in groups of four or five mm-hmm. and using a, using a structured process where people take turns speaking and they pick someone else in the circle to reflect back what they're saying. And mm-hmm. it's amazing what happens when, when you do that. Uh, could we send you to Congress, to Washington, to do a little bit of this work? The, the group that I am working with wants to do that. Uh-huh. Uh, and we have actually tried to engage some local Congress people in inviting them into this process, which we call an empathy circle process, uh-huh. which is a structured listening process. And so far, we haven't been successful at doing it. But we, we have gone to political rallies, like in Berkeley, uh-huh. taking a pop-up tent into the rally, and where everyone is, you know, it's very sad, because you go to the rally and everybody is talking, nobody's listening, they have bullhorns, and everybody's screaming, trying to, trying to get themselves heard, and nobody is doing any listening. So we take the pop-up tent there and some chairs, and we actually provide a space for people to sit down and, be, and listen to each other. And with a structured process, and uh, and it's it is amazing. I'm always surprised at what happens when people start doing that after about you know 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour of taking three minute turns of speaking and getting what you're saying reflected back to your satisfaction, so you actually feel heard. Um, It's it's a, a a kind of understanding and connection is created that doesn't happen in typical conversation. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking that every generation or so, there's different uh, fads. I'll use that word in a good way, but different styles or different ideas, because I remember going to a seminar on communication 30 years ago, and the, the theme was congruent communication. Right, that was the term used. So, yeah. and now it's uh, empathetic communication or empathetic listening. Uh, we we go through these things that all try to accomplish the same connectivity in a healthy way to help people in their lives and in the lives of our world, our community. So, uh, this is this is our current theme. Do you think the change of, of themes is that a change of methodology always? Or is it a change? Is it, is it a new ownership of a new generations looking at it in a different way? That's a great question. <laughs> so I think, you know, what's important in a relationship is respect, dignity, and respect. Offering that to the other person and getting it yourself. I think if you have dignity and respect in a relationship, then you can the differences you can work through differences. And I think that um, the, the, the different ways that we offer respect to each other or dignity to each other, those, those may change. So, for instance, the idea of me reflecting back what I'm hearing you say, that's a way of trying to show respect for what you are saying because I'm trying to show that I understand you. Now, I have actually been in conversations where people don't want to be reflected back. 
Like they they um, experience that as me somehow taking over their expression mm. because I'm saying something about it. And if someone is reacting that way to it, I would stop doing it, right? right. If right. someone's not experiencing it as connecting, you stop doing it. Um, and in different cultures, uh, there are different norms and different rules about that. I think that, w- and this kind of comes from my background in nonviolent communication. Marshall, Marshall Rosenberg said this, you know, that all human beings have the same basic needs. We all have a need to be understood and accepted, loved. Uh, we have a need for meaning in our lives. We have a need for kind of spirituality of some kind. Uh, we have a need for beauty and for play and for, and, I, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to make an exhaustive list here of the needs, but there are these basic human needs that all human beings experience. We all want connection. We all want, contri- we all want to make a contribution of some kind. But the different ways that people do that uh, constitute different cultures. So, uh, like, I might, uh, t- when I want to play, I might want to go see a movie. When you want to play, you might want to go ice skating. So there's like different right. preferences for that. In terms of expressing respect, in some cultures, if you look at a person when you speak to them, you're showing respect. In other cultures, looking, you're not supposed to look at the person in the eyes. That was just thinking of that as we're looking at each yes. other. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, uh, understanding those cultural differences uh, is important. And yeah, it's uh, so. How how does that contribute to a world of nonviolence? How does that contribute? Because you've associated this empathetic communication and yeah. emphasizing the relational nature of it. How does that contribute to nonviolence? Um, that's a great question too. Um, and I something I didn't mention before is my association with the Meta Center for Nonviolence here in Petaluma, and I have done a lot of work with them, and I've really learned a lot from them. And I'm actually in the process of making a documentary with them about nonviolence. Um, and I think. Um, the way empathy relates to nonviolence is, you know, Gandhi, both Gandhi and King said this, and nonviolent principles say this, that uh, the other person is never my enemy. So I, if, I, if I am viewing the person who disagrees with me or who I'm having a problem with, if I view them as my enemy, then I, am, then I'm, then I have a block to... Uh, receiving them and I have a block to communicating with them and problem solving with them in an effective way because I see them as the problem. In, uh, in all kinds of nonviolent practices, and there are lots of different practices, the idea is to try to see the humanity in the other person mm-hmm. and to understand their behavior as an attempt to meet their needs of some kind. It might be a need for safety, it might be a need for um, connection, um, and if you can see that need being expressed, it helps you have more compassion for them, even if you disagree with what they're doing, even if you want to stop their behavior. So the listening part of this empathetic listening piece is a way of actually accomplishing that and leading away from conflict, away from separating people and bringing them together and thus avoiding violence and yes. uh, hatred, etc. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's a um, it, yeah. It both it's both a process of you seeing the humanity in the other person and the other person feeling seen as a human being right. by listening to one another and being able to reflect back what you 
what you understand about them, what's important to them. All right. So you and John Crowley are getting together to try to introduce this to the broader audience of the 60,000 people who live in Petaluma. We are. Tell we are. It. So, you know, part of uh, something in these divisive times is people, people are always saying, well, people should be listening to each other more. We should be communicating more, which is totally true. And so, but where do you do that? <laughs> where do you go to communicate with people that you disagree with? So John and I uh, are starting this thing called Petaluma Conversations, and we're going to start at Aquas Cafe, and it's going to be the third Thursday of each month, and we're starting in February. And uh, the idea is people are going to come down and participate in this structured listening process in small groups of like five people. Mm-hmm. And the, the topics will be up to them, whatever whatever's important that people want to talk about. And the idea is to actually be able to honestly express yourself about something that's really important to you and be heard for it. And the, it's these, the, these sessions will not, are not really about problem solving. They're really just about creating understanding, creating more understanding about, among people who maybe disagree about stuff. And again, you're starting when? When's the first uh, day? So we're going to do it in February. Okay. The third, the third, uh, the third Tuesday. Tuesday. The third Tuesday in February. Right. Look, you get the flyer here. <laughs> which is the 19th. Okay. Not what yeah, time? At 6:30. Okay. At Aquas Cafe. We're, yeah, come at 6:30. We're going to start at 7. Okay. Good. Well, I know John has been a guest on this show, so I don't mind that the two of you have paired up and announcing this. I think it's a great thing because I think taking. Uh, this pattern of empathetic listening into our community and offering that opportunity, uh, both in the setting of the Aquas Cafe, but also as a starting point for dealing with the issues we've dealt with last evening with the school system. It's all about listening to each other and seeing the other person, hearing the other person clearly, and working our way uh, from there. Yeah, I mean, and, and I want to say, I mean, the, the process that we use is very simple to learn. Uh-huh. And so part of what we're hoping, too, is that people will take the practice and use it in other places in their lives. And I think it can be used in other It's about uh, yeah, families, families, and families and workplaces and, and, yes, workplaces and, uh, and all of that. Well, I want to thank you, Lou Dwyer, for being with us uh, on Talking with Rabbi Ted today. I know you were on the show once before, but it got lost somewhere in the recording shuffle of the uh, studio here. So I'm glad that our community has had an opportunity uh, to listen to you again. And uh, hopefully another time will happen too. And thank you for helping out in the uh, studio today. Thanks very much. I appreciate being here. You have been listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted here at KPCA LP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, online at kpca.fm. We'll return to the studio in a couple of weeks with uh, some new guests who are going to bring more information and insight into our life here in Petaluma. Have a great day.